Don't miss the magic and the men behind Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel live will be at the following places. May the 31st will be returning to the Brighton Fringe Festival and then for the whole of that long weekend we're there on June the 1st and June the 2nd. June the 14th we'll be in Hastings. June the 26th to the 30th we'll be performing at the Glastonbury Festival and July the 26th to the 28th we'll be at Kendall Calling. And then for the whole of August we'll be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with two shows daily, Split Egg, a magic show about being twins and the two magicians. Go to www.caneandablemagic.com for more. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. Are you really going to do this? Okay. Well, welcome to the show. We've got an amazing show coming up for you. It's Mark Watson, the man of mischief. And uh, Ed Kane is sat next to me at the moment, but he's he's refusing to talk. And the reason he's refusing to talk is he thought we had booked Mark Watson, the comedian. Now, we understand this is, this is a problem that our, our guest coming up often has to struggle with and he's going to talk all about sharing the same name as a performer with currently maybe a higher profile than him. He's also going to tell his unbelievable story. Over a year ago he was a banker, he is now a full-time professional magician, professional juggler, professional performer, let's call him. He's got a really inspirational story, one we can't wait to share with you. It's the man of mischief, Mark Watson, and he joins us in a minute. Now before he joins us uh, after this interview, uh, and at the end of this interview we're going to talk about Mark's new Edinburgh show, Living the Dream, and after this interview Mark told us that he's actually now um, been helped out on this show by Dave Alwick. Dave Alwick is directing the show, so uh, just a quick tip of the hat to you there, Dave. Uh, this is going to be an amazing show, now Dave's on board, I'm sure it's going to be even better, and we're gearing up for Edinburgh season now, the programme is launched, you can pick it up from various places, we'll of course be performing two shows a day, as you would have heard in that little advert beforehand, and, and we can't wait for it, but for right now, we can't wait to get into it, with Mark Watson. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is the man of mischief, Mark Watson. He joins us to discuss his fascinating journey to becoming a full-time performer. And I've got two questions to kick off that are very similar. Um, Secondly, I want to know how you would describe what you do for a living now. But before then, if I was to ask you a year and a half ago what you did for a living, what would the answer be? Great questions to start with. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on here. So a year and a half ago, or even a year ago, I would have told you that I was an investment banker. Uh, So I worked for a a Japanese investment bank called Nomura. Uh, Specifically, I worked in the treasury department within finance. So I helped fund the whole bank, effectively. Uh, I helped manage a a $45 billion balance sheet globally, uh, which it just crazy numbers that don't mean anything to me then or now. But um, yeah, that's what I used to do for anything. So my, my days were spent on spreadsheets. Um, I, was a, I was a qualified accountant, so I looked at P&L's balance sheets quite a lot of the time as well. Yeah, and that's what I, that's what I did for a living. Um, 
But when I eventually jacked it all in last June, I then became a professional performer, as you said. I've described myself as a magician, juggler, but I have been known to do a little bit of acting throughout my time. I've, I've, done, I've done a movie and a little bit of radio work over my time, so I've done all sorts. It's an interesting story, and I think, um, from what I know of our listeners, we have a lot of full-time pros. We have a lot of people that are hobbyists, mm-hmm. and probably a lot of people that were maybe in a position that you were in, that are maybe wanting to, to go from you know, an office job to being a full-time performer. So I'm interested to discuss that journey and some of the things you've done to do it. But before then, let's go all the way back. When did you kind of first start learning skills and things like that then? Is this something that you always wanted to do or did you just start learning to juggle in uh, late nights working as a banker (laughs) to beat the stress? Not quite, no. It it definitely wasn't a one day in banking, I just wanted to run away with the circus. I'd love that to be my story, but uh, it's not quite the case. Um, no, I, I, I always started out in performing, so in theatre specifically, so from about the age of six, seven, I used to spend um, evenings during the week and weekends doing amateur dramatics. Uh, I, I, my first ever production was called uh, Robbie Nudd, and it was a comedy version of Robin Hood, which if you can't tell that from the title, I mean, phew, it was so hilarious and I can't remember any of the jokes, but you know, I was seven, who cares. Um, so that, that was kind of my, my first thing, but I, I was always interested in magic, I always sort of showed a passion for it. I mean, the usual story, I definitely there was a Paul Daniels magic set lying around somewhere. I, I think a bigger influence, actually, for me, or the biggest memory early on, was actually The Masked Magician. Like, right. I, like, me and my dad, in particular, would always sit down, when it was on like ITV, and it was yeah. sort of first being shown, we'd always sit down, I think it was on a Saturday night, and, and it was in that sort of nice primetime slot, and we'd always sit down and watch it and discuss it, and, and yeah, I think that was, that was a bigger influence for me. Not that I ever went on to do any of his tricks, because as I'm sure some of our listeners are aware, some of the methods that he came up with of those tricks were, and, and he claimed were like classics of magic, and some of them definitely weren't. Some of those big prop illusions were definitely made up for that TV show. But You know his rabbit from a hat? Yes. I had guinea pigs at that point and went downstairs into mm. our cellar and built a little hook on the back of nice. an old table and put a guinea pig in it. And tried to do his rabbit from a hat with the guinea pig. Nice. And how did that work out for you? Horrendously. <laughs> um, guinea pigs are very wriggly. And if they get scared in any way, mm. they will the wee and poo immediately. Yep. Um, so I was just trying to lift this soggy bag. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the first ever episode of The Mass Magician. And I, I love that rabbit from the hat. For a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, no magician really does the magic from a hat. It's, it's quite an... an old trick that people still have this idea that people would do. So the fact that he would explain it on the first show. Also, the, the method he was explaining, I mean, I'm, I'm sure is written down somewhere and someone probably did it at some point. It doesn't seem like a practical method for a lot of tricks or illusions. I mean, most magicians would use a dodgy hat, I would say, rather than yeah. coming up with this convoluted method of doing it from behind a table with a thing. And also, the amount of times he flips that hat in order to show it's empty. Look, it's so suspicious. It just wouldn't play, I don't think, but but I love watching it. Yeah, I loved it. I, to be honest, because it's, you kind of feel, like, I remember at the time everyone would be like, oh, what do you think of the mass magician? And you feel like, you should be like, yeah, he's a dick. <laughs> but, I remember the first ever show I did was a Shropshire Magical Society close-up competition. <laughs> I've learned three tricks, I should enter a competition. And I remember watching the mass magician before it and being very excited and inspired mm. to... And there was some great stuff magic. in that. I remember the, um, uh, there was definitely a, a, a 
bow and arrow, maybe a crossbow, through going through a woman and hitting a dartboard and sort of ribbon through the woman. I remember watching that and thinking, that is a great trick. And then when he explained it, it's like, it's a cool method for it as well. Like, it's really, I mean, theatrically, you'd have to set it up because it requires setup and, and all this. Stuff, but, oh, it's a good trick. It's a good trick. It looked good. So no, some of this stuff was great. It's just, especially in the, the later series, some of the illusions they were explaining had clearly just been developed for the show, explained for the show, and no magician will ever perform them because they're just not realistic. Yeah. Which is kind of fine. I studied at college drama and English mm. and then at university journalism because I knew I wanted to be a magician but if I was going to fall back on something it would be talking to people and recording it. <laughs> what did you study then? Were you kind of into sort of amateur operatics? Were you into sort of so, studying things that m might help you as a performer or was it? Yeah, so my, my biggest influence in all of magic and uh, I'm sure many people would say the same is Paul Daniels. Uh, I love him as a performer. I, I, I liked his TV work, although, um, to be honest, I mean, he finished TV properly in sort of the mid-90s, and I was only born in 1991, so I was a little bit young to see it first time around, yeah. but definitely we have the video with, like, the highlights of the Paul Daniels Magic Show and all that sort of thing. Um, so I remember seeing, but particularly live, when I was, like, 12, 13, and I first sort of got properly into magic, I, did, I mean, I was doing magic shows at the age of, like, eight or nine down the street, which were... One of my first tricks was the old um, sticking needles in your thumb, where you switch your thumb out for a carrot under the cloth, and just... I, I mean, I did it terribly. I'm sure I did it terribly, but uh, that was one of my first <laughs> tricks. Um, but yeah, by about the age of 12, 13, I got brought properly into magic, uh, because my, so my... My family has always been in and around theatre. My brother works in theatre full-time uh, in Essex, uh, the Queen's Theatre at Hornchurch, um, and my mum and dad have always been involved. My dad's a theatrical photographer, so he takes a lot of photos for theatre stuff, does all their promo stuff. And my mum has been a wardrobe mistress, uh, particularly in pantomime. And I love pantomime, we might talk about that a bit later on. But uh, she was working on a, the local pantomime, and one of the people in the show also did some magic. And so she arranged during the course of the Christmas period, while they were running the show, to, um, between shows, set aside an hour... And I came, and there was a chap called Martin Pearson, who uh, certainly was a member of the Magic Circle, I think he still is. Um, and for an hour, he showed me a couple of simple tricks with cards, with coins. And he was so, he was so generous with his time. And uh, he gave me a couple of packs of bicycle cards, a couple of half dollars. And he told me two books to go away and read, which were Mark Wilson's Complete Course in Magic. Fantastic. Excellent book, yeah. my first magic book. And J.B. Bobo, Coin Magic. Right? So I instantly went on Amazon, bought both those books, and that was my learning from that and he said you know learn what you can in those books you'll soon discover what you love and what you don't and then you'll find out from that and he was right and and that was a great start to everything um so to answer your question a bit further down the line yes looking at university with paul daniels as my biggest influence he always said if you want to get into show business you need to spend as much time on the show as on the business and vice versa so i actually went to university to study business specifically management sciences at loughborough yeah. So uh, business management with quite a bit of statistics thrown in means I get a science degree. I'm not a scientist. That's a load of rubbish. But, uh, but I did do a lot of numbers and stats work. Hence why I then became an accountant later on. I mean, I'm innately a numbers guy as well as a performer. So, so is it a case of coming out of uni, you felt you should get a job to kind of make the most of the degree? Or was perform did performing Nazi as an, an option to you at that point? Full-time yeah. performing, that is. Yeah, yeah. Great question. I mean, yeah, throughout this time, from about the age of 15, I was doing gigs of some variety. I did my first kids' party for a, a one-year-old, which 
it should never be done. But, no. uh, I've it, done one yeah. of those. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of those. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was, I was doing gigs and pieces, and I've always done it as a, as a sideline. But yeah, when I, I came to finish university, as part of my degree, I actually had to do a placement year, which was really important when I was looking at my degree courses. I wanted some experience, and, and you got an extra diploma in that. I have so many useless letters after my name, it's unbelievable. But um, yeah, so I, and I, as part of that, I figured, right, if I'm going to spend a year out of university, I want to get some experience. When I start applying, I might as well start by applying for the biggest money. I might as well start to earn the biggest money. <clears throat> a lot of my friends on the course were going for marketing jobs, which were like 15 grand for the year or something. So, fine, let's start at banking, which is like 30 grand for a year's experience. Not even graduated yet, and they'll pay me like 30 grand for a year. Let's apply to a couple of these. So I went on some careers advice days and whatnot and saw a few employers and stuff. And actually, Nomura was top of my list for people I wanted to go to. Um, they were really friendly. They, they had a, a slightly different vibe to them than a lot of the bigger American investment banks. So I wanted to apply for them. I did apply to a couple others. Uh, JP Morgan turned me down on the first like round of testing. I actually turned Goldman Sachs down because Nomura eventually offered me a job. So um, nice. I get to say I turned Goldman Sachs down. <laughs> um, yeah, and we and, and throughout the whole interview process, the I mean the only experience on my CV was oh I've been a like part time professional magician since the age of fifteen, and boy did they want to talk about that because they had a lot of boring numbers accountancy people in, and the fact that I was there to tell them about being a fire juggler and whatnot, and then but then of course they'd always tag on so why on earth do you want to go into banking and then they realised that I actually like numbers and accounting and and yeah so I ended up doing that as a placement year, as soon as I finished that and went back to university they offered me a job to go back to and again looking towards Paul Daniels I mean Paul was uh, he worked in local council I believe as an accountant I think um, until about the age of 27 28 which also happens to be the age that I quit banking I promise I've not copied his his life choices but I do think it's important to go out and get some real life experience and if nothing else banking definitely taught me that whilst life as a performer can be tough at times and you can you know you can be starving hungry during the, the poor months and whatnot um, it can often be even more painful to be in a job that you don't really love and you want to be doing something else. So it kind of taught me that. But but over those five years, I got a lot of experience. I became a chartered accountant. Had to do like craziest thing I ever did was was go to university and then decide coming straight out of it. Do you know what I want to do? I want to do seventeen more exams over the next year and a half in order to pass my accounting exams early, uh, which wasn't fun. But did that, got the qualification, and it means I can go and work anywhere in the world as an accountant if I want to in future. But. So I imagine whilst you were kind of working at, I know ridiculously long hours for a banker, but I imagine we're still doing some degree of sort of shows on a, on a semi-professional basis. But I'm interested to know um, what was the sort of um, nucleus for you leaving banking, becoming a magician, and that journey exactly. So was there a sort of eureka moment of, I can't do this? Um, anymore or had you kind of seen performers that made you think actually I, I can do that? It was a combination so um, for a couple of years before I, I eventually left I'd gone to the Edinburgh Fringe I'd never been before so the first time I went must have been 2016 uh, and I just went for a few days and I went and saw lots of great shows uh, met up with couple of friends I had up there Tom Crosby so it's been a good friend of mine okay. um, so I went and saw his show and saw people did it up there basically and, and made it work and I loved it I loved the experience so then I went again in 2017 took a, a week off work and actually went for nine days and while I was up there I took part in 
um, a couple of cabaret spots. I did uh, the lock-in cabaret with Griffin and Jones a couple of times, but I also went to see a lot of shows. And I really used that nine days to go, right, if I was going to bring my own show up here, how do you make this work? How do you not lose thousands of pounds, which is what you hear about from a lot of people? Um, and I figured at the end of those nine days, do you know what? I could give this a go. There's a lot of there's a lot of people up here doing it and making it work, and I think I've worked out some of the best ways to to try and make that that feasible. So I want to give this a go. Now the only trouble is there's no way that the bank was going to give me four weeks, ideally five weeks, to give me time either side to sort of settle in. There's no way they'd give me all my annual leave in one big chunk like that. And also I'm not sure I really wanted to do that because I, I wanted time beforehand to sort of build up and, and develop the show. Um, also in the back of my mind, although I'd never done it, my, my performance style is very much that of street performing, and yeah. street shows. And so I, I wanted to give street performing a, a, a proper go. And also I saw at Edinburgh, one of the best ways, if you're going to do an indoor show, the best ways to fund that is often to do street shows on the side to try and Absolutely. earn some extra money. Um, I, I call it the, the Paul De Beck model. That's right? <laughs> what I saw it as. Um, just getting a little name drop in there. Yeah, well, he has to have one every bloody episode, otherwise he gets angry. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I, um, yeah, so at that point, I kind of knew, right, by next year, for the Edinburgh Fringe, I need to have quit and left. So the smart thing to do, therefore, because in, in, in sort of May time for us at Nomura was bonus time, when you get paid your annual bonus. Now, I should, I should point out at this point, Despite me saying I was a banker, I definitely wasn't in the upper echelons of crazy earning one. I, I had a very good salary and yeah. I had a nice sort of 10-12% of salary bonus coming up in May. But I was no mean, like, banking didn't make me anywhere close to a millionaire or anything like that. Yes. Yeah. As, as you well know. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I can see your clothes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was worth hanging on for, you know, an extra five grand or whatever it was, it was worth hanging on until the end of May when that would get paid and then handed in my notice. So, so that was always the plan. Um, and as soon as I'd, I'd made that decision in my head, I told a lot of people, a lot of family, friends, and whatnot, right, this is my plan, this is what I'm going to do. And obviously being an accountant, I planned it all out on a spreadsheet and like, how long can I survive with my savings and all this sort of thing. So it wasn't a sort of crazy decision. But then as soon as I'd made that decision, it's amazing how many things sort of clicked into place to make it clear that I was doing the right thing. So I think the January before I left, um, there was a few incidents at work that just made it clear to me I didn't want to be doing this anymore. So uh, yeah, um, January, there was a couple of days where 9am on a Monday, we'd have a team meeting and they'd say, right, this is what everyone's working on. And I'd say, right, I've got this reporting that I have to do over the next couple of days. That's what I'm going to be doing. Um, and then I'll be free for other stuff after that. Great. Soon as that meeting was over, not during the meeting, but as soon as that meeting was over, the team captain came over and was like, uh, we've, um, I kind of need you to work on this budget stuff. We're, we're working on the new annual budget. I need you to work on this for the next few days. I was like, right. But I have to do the reporting that I talked to you about in the meeting we just had. I, that has to be done in the next two days. It has to be submitted. It has to be done in the next two right, but I need you to work on this budget stuff. And, and we tried to see if there was anyone else in the team that could help chip in, and there wasn't. So I, I turned to my far more senior team leader and said, right, I can do this, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be working on your stuff during the day, and then when you go home, I'm going to be doing another day's work in order to get that reporting done. I'm not saying I won't do that. I'm saying you are the one telling me that I have to do that. Yeah. And he said, well, I don't want anyone to have to work late, but... If that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. So, right. Um, and I, I had a little bit of a 
mini breakdown around that time of like, I just, I just don't know what this is for. Like, and, and when you're working for someone that, as lovely as he was, he had so many great qualities, but it was decisions like that that just made me not want to be part of that system anymore. So for two days straight, I did a whole day's work. He left at 5, 5.30, and then I'd do another day's work and leave, gone midnight, and get a taxi home. And doing that two days in a row, and then coming in and still doing another three days of work, I was like, oh, I couldn't be bothered doing that. There was, there was other periods earlier on, because um, I did different roles within the bank at various times. There was about a three-month period where I was constantly working 9 a.m. to like 10, 11 o'clock at night, um, which just for three months straight is is going some. And then when I was doing some gigs and stuff at the weekend, um, there, was, there was a point where I got home at 11 p.m. on a Friday, having worked up till there. I then had to pack my bags, and I was out doing a festival for the weekend, doing like street show style performances. So I was having to go home, pack all my juggling equipment, my table, everything, and then heading out first thing on the Saturday morning. And I got to the gig and I was just exhausted. I mean, I did it and, yeah. and it went fine. But getting there at eight, nine in the morning, I was like, oh, I'm just physically exhausted. This is bad. Um, so yeah, so there was plenty of things along the way that made it clear that I needed to do that. And when I did eventually quit and hand in my notice, as with any job, the first five minutes, everyone is shocked. It's like, oh no, how could you leave us? As soon as they read my resignation letter or they, the, I told them why I was doing it, they're like, oh, no, that makes total sense. I mean, you were going away pretty much every weekend to do gigs here or conventions here and whatnot and stuff. It makes total sense. And, and they were really supportive. Good. So it was May that you, you left. Uh, it was May that I quit. And so June, middle of June. Middle, middle of, of June. June last year. Yeah. So then you just had this July period to get ready for Correcting for Um What did that look like? So I'd already done a couple of previews of the show earlier on. So the first preview was sort of around Easter time. Um, sneakily, I actually did a, uh, a charity show at work where I said, I'm going to do a one-hour show for you guys. They've got a beautiful auditorium, like 200-seater, um, and I could get it professionally filmed as well. They've got, like, HD broadcast oh, quality nice. cameras and everything, right? Um, so it's like... Why is that there, then? Is that for, like... Oh, that's for, like, yeah, right? like, town halls and, you know, so the... the um, the sort of London CEO might do a, a a town hall once every three months, and that needs to be broadcast to the the global bank. Yeah, everywhere. So, um, but yeah, it's it's amazing equipment, amazing setup. So I said, if you can give me the auditorium on a evening, any evening you like, for an hour, I will give my time freely. I'll come do the show for free. Um, we'll charge I don't know ten pounds a ticket. Bankers are well off; they'll pay that sort of thing, and. People can come enjoy the show. Every single penny will go to our designated charity. For work. It was a win-win for absolutely everyone. Yeah. What they didn't know was that that was the preview for my Edinburgh show, and I wanted some top-quality footage from it. Uh, and that that was done literally two weeks before I handed in my notice. Brilliant. So that was great. Um, so then, in the period from me leaving, um, I had I had a few more previews booked in, and and stuff did change. Like materially, the show was still the same, and the structure was the same. There was a couple of routines, there was a couple of bits of juggling that I did in a totally different way in the eventual show because of the way it's decision made. Um, one, one of the best previews I did actually, which I'm definitely going to do this year, was I had about eight or ten friends around to my flat and I did, who are not magicians, not performers, but just regular audience people. Uh, they'd seen me do stuff over the years, but they hadn't seen this one hour show before. And I said to them, right, we're going to do the show, I'm going to film it, but then I'm also going to film your reactions and discussions afterwards and we're going to chat about the show afterwards if that's okay and I provided them with food and drink and stuff so it was a nice afternoon for them and that was probably the most valuable thing for me because we did the show for an hour 
a couple of things went wrong and as but they were friends and it was fine but more so that we chatted for two hours afterwards and it was good to know all their different yeah. views on things and, and understand where things went so that was really useful also in that one month period I started street performing I'd literally never done even though my style had always been towards that even though I'd done the cups and balls which is the key part of my street show now even though I'd done that four years in festivals and whatnot, I'd never done it as a street show asking for money so in that month not only did I have to finalise this one hour indoor show I also had to create a street show because I'd registered as a street performer at Edinburgh and knew I wanted to be doing that so I went to Covent Garden and started doing that which was interesting interesting yeah. um, how, how was it then flesh that out a little bit um, interesting starting to street perform yeah because and I, I, I don't want I know a lot of people we speak to on this podcast are street performers yes um, and I'm happy with that uh, but I think it is always interesting to hear people's takes on starting it because I'm well I, I know actually um, that some magicians that have never done street shows before mm. have listened to certain episodes of this and done a street show yeah. for the first time yeah. and people have got in touch and been like I really enjoyed this you know what else do I need to know to do this um, so I'm keen to kind of get your sure. understanding yeah. of, of how it was at the beginning because it can feel a little bit intimidating and a yeah. bit like walking into the lion's den with the other performers who are around and then you've got to do your show as well mm. how did you find it? I will say I, I was kind of fortunate in that I came to a lot of people come to street performing maybe as an early stage level of performing and so they're kind of finding their feet working out stuff from there um, and I, I I was lucky that I kind of came later on like I said I'd, I'd done the Cups and Balls for um, a few years before then at festivals and things so I knew what the finale of my show was going to be yeah. and so I pieced together the start of my show which was going to be a coin routine that I'd done um, in close up before but I sort of stretched it out a little bit and made it my, my build up to the street show effectively and then it was the middle section that I wasn't sure about and the first day I went out so the first day I went out a lot of people do their first street show and they maybe don't earn anything and they don't work out I, I was fortunate that because I kind of knew what I was doing where I was going I mean my first street show I made about 30-35 pounds yeah. on a Friday evening um, and some people will call me out on that and go that's a lie it's not uh, I'll tell you why I can tell you that because every single street show I've done is on a spreadsheet because I'm an accountant. <laughs> so every single street show I have a timestamp location, I have a breakdown of the hat of to, to how much I've earned, broken down by like fives, tens, twenties, and the coins and all that something, and a note to say like what went well, what didn't, uh, and I still do that even to this day. If there's anyone out there interested in street performing, interested in that, um, get in touch with me, and I'm very happy to share that spreadsheet with them because they can see how it's progressed over time and improved. So that first street show, the, the middle section I came up with, I, I'd been working on a three-phase card routine, um, a sort of multiple selection, which did form part of my fringe show, and I thought, oh, let's try this on the street. So I did that in the first street show, and a couple of great people, uh, Sergio Barros, who yep. um, I've, I've watched for years as a street performer, uh, he watched my show and was like, wow, you're trying to do like three card tricks in this five, ten-minute section in the middle. That's an awful lot. Why don't you simplify it? So he, he told me about a gag where you get a, a kid out and you get them to hold an apple and then you're gonna you're gonna throw the knife at their head and you can build this up and something. And I thought, that's a great idea, but I'm gonna link it in with the card trick. Yeah. So what it became, literally the next day I went home, rewrote this whole thing, and then the next day it became the routine that I do today. So 
essentially I'm, I say I'm going to do my most dangerous trick and we, we pick a card, we get it signed and then the woman is holding onto this pack of cards in my show, she's going to throw the cards up I'm going to throw the juggling knife at the cards and a guy in the audience is going to catch it in his mouth and we build this up as a big trick and I already had a lot of jokes and things from my walk of death routine where I juggle three knives over an audience member so I literally ripped all of the jokes out of that routine and put them into this one for the street and pretty much from that point on my show content wise has been the exact same yeah. but in the last nine months it's gotten so much better and tighter and funnier the, the biggest emphasis for me on a street show is it's got to be funny again I don't want to name drop in too much but watching people like Paul Debeck rock massive shows at the Edinburgh Fringe and in London as well you know, it makes me want to do a very funny street show because that's what people appeal to. That's what they like. You see it even now. If um, if you get foreign tourists that, that perhaps English they're not particularly good with, if they come and watch my show, they're not going to watch till the end because there isn't a lot of magic in it. There's some magic and there's enough to sort of keep people strung along. But the thing that keeps people there and the thing that makes people pay money is the jokes, is the laughter, yeah. is the fact that you're bringing people all together like that. And that's what you have to sort of work and develop on. Comedy's key on the street. I only do one trick. <laughs> and sometimes my show is forty minutes long. You do, but I, I yeah, but I love your show. There's so many great bits. I mean, how long can you string out people throwing fruit into a bag? I mean, that's just thirty-five minutes. Exactly. That's great. That's great. We will get on to Edinburgh in a second. Sure. But before that, how often are you going out and working the streets? So nowadays, I I go out quite often. I I sort of in my head, my working days are Monday to Saturday. Often I don't end up working all of those days because you might get bad weather and, and whatnot. But those are kind of my, my allocated days. It wasn't always that way. So when I first started out, I got the impression that Friday, Saturday, Sunday was the best days. And so I didn't tend to bother during the week. And then I started seeing other performers perform during the week. And, and so started trying that a bit more. And I've gone through periods of being a bit lazy with it because I didn't think I could earn enough money. And, and now I think I'm actually a better performer now so that I can handle the quieter days and make a bit more money during that time. Uh, but there's also the risk that you... That there's lots of great performers out on the street, and, and they're very, they've been very helpful to me. They've given me lots of great advice. Um, they can also fib a little bit as to what days are good and what aren't, or when money was good or when it wasn't. So you kind of have to take what they say with a pinch of salt sometimes. So I, I've kind of learned my own way that, okay, the more I work, the more I go out and do stuff, the luckier you get and the better shows you do. So, yeah, so I, I spend a good chunk of my time doing that. Um, actually, this month and, and looking ahead to summer is probably going to be a bit less of the street performing, especially in May. I seem to have a lot of events on at various weekends and things, especially with the bank holidays. Yeah, I get a lot of bookings that way. And I'm trying to push for more gigs, but um, I do love street performing. I love the street. It's such good fun. It's it's a great to have in your arsenal. It sure. really is. So you go into Edinburgh for the first time. Yep. And you're part of PBH Free Fringe. Correct. Yep. yep. How, how was the what 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 did the show look like and you must have learned so much during that month oh definitely so the the show itself um, didn't change a lot over the course of the month so I, I because it was my first show it was like a, a best of it was all the material that I'd been working on for the last 10 12 years that I've been performing in various capacities and one or two new bits in there that had come in in the last six nine months that's sort of thing so a lot of it was stuff I was very comfortable with. I knew where the, the laughter points were, and it was really just a case of trying to string it all together. But it didn't have an overarching theme or story or anything like that. So in terms of marketing it, it was a bog-standard magic juggling variety show. The one thing I could sell it on was it was a one-man 
variety show. There aren't a lot of jugglers at Edinburgh. There are more magicians, I would say, than jugglers. And so to combine all that into one and go, on a one-man variety show, you're going to come, you're going to see something you like, um, is it, a pretty good way to go. Uh, I got very lucky that the first day, the, the Saturday opening Saturday of the Fringe, I, I actually sold out. I was in a sort of 70-seat menu at the Bourbon Bar, and we, we had to send about 20 people away. Uh, for fire safety reasons, which I thought was amazing. And we did a fantastic show. They were very generous at the end with the hat. And I honestly went home. I, I called my mum and dad. I called my girlfriend who was uh, traveling at the time. And I, I called them and was like, wow, I think I've, I think I've cracked the fringe. I think I know how this works. <laughs> Done it! And you're laughing at me because you know what's going to come <laughs> after this. So we sent about 20 people away on that day. And then the following day on the Sunday... I had less than 20 people in my audience. Yeah. I had about 16, I think. And again, I've got all that tracked on the spreadsheet. If anyone's interested, do get in touch. But yeah, it, it, it didn't pan out quite. That was genuinely my best day of the whole Fringe was the, the opening day. First one. It often is for a lot of people, especially on the free Fringe. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it certainly doesn't go out with a fizzle, but it, it does, sometimes it can fizzle out a little bit at Edinburgh. Sure. Um, Especially with, I mean, with Free Fringe, at the beginning of the festival, everyone is like, we want to go and see everything, mm. we want to see this, we want to see that, we want to see that. But sometimes, by the end of the festival, if shows have got huge, massive reviews and, and all sorts, and they are the word-of-mouth shows, that's the shows that people mm. are going to be going to on the last weekend. So I, I was in a venue called The Bourbon Bar, which was a lovely venue, really nice space, uh, just a little bit off the beaten track. It's uh, it, not not particularly close to like the Royal Mile and everything, so it can be a little bit tricky to push people in that direction. Also not the best venue for juggling because the ceiling height was about, I mean, it was touching my hat sometimes. Like, yeah. um, so considering in the show, I did five balls with a catch behind the back to finish and I juggled three knives over an audience member with my walk of death. Oh, and I did uh, three balls in one hand as well. And, and that's So doing all that under what was maybe a seven-foot ceiling in the right places, was tough, but good fun. And audiences seem to love the attempt at that. Um, so it was, a, it was a nice venue, but just a little bit off the beaten track. And, yeah, I think, as with anyone, filling it on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday was not too difficult and, and had some good audiences there. And then on a Monday, Tuesday, I could struggle. And my so I, I, never had a, I never had an empty show, and I had to cancel a show, which was great. Uh, but one show, I did have two people in, a couple who uh, had literally only just, they just arrived in Edinburgh and they found me on the Edinburgh Fringe app as like nearby and now. And I just happened to pop up. So we did a whole show for them. Considering my show requires seven volunteers <laughs> throughout it, I, I made really clear at the start, I'm going to do the whole show for you. I'm going to do it as is, but I'm going to have to use you guys a lot. If you're up for it, I'm up for it. And, and they were keen. Um, and they paid me a whole £10 between them, which was great. Although, seeing as my daily grind was like £100 to break even, that was a painful day. Right. So, yeah, it was fun. Um, yeah, it was an expensive year for me, Edinburgh Fringe-wise. I did make a small profit, uh, which not a lot of people do, especially not on the first year. So I was very pleased and proud of that. Um, when days were quiet on the indoor show, the street shows really helped. I never had a bad street show there was a couple that got rained off and so I didn't do the slots, but I never had a show where I didn't earn well from, so, so that really helped. Um, and as I say, I made a small profit, but I 
I was a bit stupid in some of my costs. I booked my accommodation quite late, yeah, and so paid far too much for that. Uh, I bought far too many flyers, <laughs> way too many flyers. How many did you buy? Ten thousand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I've now learned is way too many. Yeah. Um, did you use how many? Did you use not half of them? No. So, so did that come in two boxes? Did you get? Did they come as a they box? They came in five boxes. So you got a, a thousand per box. Two thousand. Two thousand. Sorry, two thousand per box. Yes. How many boxes did you get through? A couple. Because I remember our first year, I think we had 10,000. Yeah. And... Um, I went for thick ones as well. Yeah, really nice ones. Yeah. But we got... We, ours came in two boxes and we, we got rid of 5,000. Yeah. Leading into maybe like the last weekend. And like we opened the second box and we were both like... Thank God we ordered another box because we wouldn't want to do the last weekend without flyers. So it's like it could be the smaller box. Yeah. <laughs> no, I there was a there was, uh, on the day I left the fringe. There was a recycling bin in my combination, which was just stacked high, unfortunately, with my flyers. So I'm definitely not making that mistake. Yeah. This year, um, and even this year, I'm planning to get a flyer because I did I did everything myself last year. I did all my own. My flyer design was all my own. I did. My dad took the picture of me that went in the program. Yeah. Um, and I literally did try to do everything myself. I was like, right, I know that I can make a small profit from this. I know I can make it work, but I can be smart about this and bring other people on board this time. So accommodation is cheaper. Uh, yeah. Because I'm sharing with a couple of very lovely lads known as Kane and Abel. <laughs> so listeners, if you can find the secret flat where all the cool people are, then. Um, we, we won't be there, we'll be in another flat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in this, I hope other people are. Just do me the structure of your day, as in, in Edinburgh. Sure. So I want to know what time you wake up, when you go to certain places, because, like, my diary, my it's the most on time I ever mm-hmm. am all year, because I have to work regular with yeah. work. Um, and... Knowing that you did street shows and a venue show and all this, I know that it might sound quite daunting to people, um, the effort that you put in. Because I don't want it to sound like you go up to Edinburgh, you do some street shows, you do your venue show. Um, I know this is going to be a a jam-packed day. Sure. Do it for me. I mean, over over 23 days, I was in 60 shows total, which isn't even that many, because I didn't do a street show every single day, because I sometimes took a day off from that. And some of those were cabarets where I was just doing a 10-minute slot. But still, being in 60 shows over 23 days is daunting when you look back at it. But it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, let's give an example of uh, one of my busier days. I think I did five shows on this day. So I woke up at about 8 o'clock. I then forced myself out of bed more like 8.30, 8.45. Quick shower. And then I need to get me and my crate full of performing stuff all the way up to the mile. And unfortunately, I was downhill in the, the north of Edinburgh, so I either had to trade all my stuff up or I had to pay the £1.60 for a bus, which I did more often than not, because it was worth it. Yeah. So I'd, I'd get up to the mile uh, before 10 o'clock because you have to put your uh, name tag into the drawer for the street shows. So I get my name put in there, hopefully choose a nice street show for around... 2 p.m., 3 p.m., something like that. And, and you were working what's known as the alcoves, weren't you? Correct, yeah. So I was doing the, the smaller street shows, um, mainly because I'd only just started street performing. Cups and Balls seems to work better there than it does on the big shows. I know people like um, uh, 
Charlie Caper yeah. does does cups and balls on there. Sam, uh, Sam does his cups and balls. Yeah, Sam Hurst does his cups and balls on there. But um, yeah, because I was just starting out, I wanted to do the smaller shows. I also thought I might get more shows that way. But as happened last year, there was over two hundred street performers registered for both the big shows and the little shows. So I I often just got one good show, which was what I, I wanted out of it. Um, I know even some of the regular performers were only getting maybe two booked in a day and then having to find extras wherever they could. Yeah, um, Yeah. so, so I'd go for the draw. At 10 o'clock, I'd know where my time slot was for the day. Hopefully it'd be about 1, 2 o'clock, something like that. Great. I would then take a little bit of time to go grab some breakfast. I'd go for Greg's, a nice sausage sandwich. Started <laughs> my day. Sausage sandwich and Lucas A definitely pushed me through the day. Oh, and um, Griffin and Jones gave me the advice of having a Barocca every morning. And that really did help. They have a Barocca in the morning, Barocca do they? in the morning, ah. yeah. Certainly, uh, certainly Nathan Jones does. And um, uh, it, it really helped me. I found it gave me energy, which was good. So... Pull the yeah. back lap to Barocca. Yeah, 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 it does help. Um, so then around, I don't know, 11, 11.30, I'd step out onto the mile and I'd start flying. And uh, I... I, I, I'm by no means a good flyer. I didn't work out the best technique for me. Um, my branding man of mischief, I found the best way was often to target people and going, uh, do you fancy some mischief in your life? Do you fancy some, you know, and just asking a question like that often engages people well. But I was by no means a good flyer and I need to learn better techniques for that, for sure. Uh, so I would do that for a couple of hours. I'd do my street show where I would also plug my indoor show. So that would be half an hour slot, earn some money, plug the show. Depending on when that was, if I had a bit more time afterwards, I would continue to fly. Uh, sometimes my street show would be 3.30 till 4, say, and my show was at 5.15 every day, and I had to get down from the Royal Mile to the, the north of the city again. So um, I, I I normally like to turn up to the venue a good 45 minutes to an hour beforehand. I know it, there's a lot of benefit from flying right before your show, yeah. but I just found mentally to get in the right state of mind, I needed to be there an hour before. You need to shut, you need to shut off. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, which is why this year I'm going to employ a flyer to do the couple hours before my show so that I can do it a bit with them, but then I can go get ready for the show. And also they'll work closer and closer to my venue to so sort of push people closer that way. Uh, that's the thinking anyway. So I go do the show, uh, 5.15 till 6.15, and then uh, I, I never booked in a cabaret before my show, but afterwards I would normally have one, two, sometimes three booked in to try and plug my own. Uh, one that I did a lot of the time was the Russian Roulette cabaret. Yeah. Um, mainly because they liked my Walk of Death routine, which I'm quite well known for. Um, so it's a danger act that they like to end their show with. So um, unfortunately their show started at 6.30 and it's in a different part of the city. So there's no way I, I ever got to their venue before the show started, but I would always get there by seven o'clock well before they needed me in the show. So I'd rock up, give them a little wave from the back of the thing and they knew I was there. So uh, often I would have to pack all my gear away, head up to there, do that cabaret. I would then, because we didn't have a lot of storage in our venue, I'd then have to go back to my venue, pick up my crate of gear, which had all my street show stuff in, so my speaker and everything, but also everything I used for the indoor show. I'd trundle it back to my accommodation, which was luckily only about 10 minutes away from my venue, dump stuff there. I would then go off and do maybe another cabaret, about 9, 9.30, in some small desolate venue, which ended up being... I turned up to one, and uh, I was like five minutes late for it, because I was coming from somewhere else, and there was like 11, 12 people in the room. It was a tiny room. It's like, oh, great. But then I discovered the first act was a three-person uh, sketch group. 
Then there was a two-person music act. Then there was another three-person sketch group. Then there was me. And we realised that we were doing our show, our act, for two women in the back corner. And so we literally each individually flyed those people from their seat. We didn't even wait for them to get up and go. We were just like, here, take these people. I so, think I know where that was, but I'll ask you afterwards. Some of those cabarets were more worthwhile than others. So I'd, I'd go do that one at half nine for an hour. And then I'd have a bit of time to kill. I'd normally realise that I haven't eaten since my sausage sandwich in the morning. So I would then mope around in McDonald's or KFC or wherever I'd want to go for an evening meal. Because my last cabaret of the night would be 1pm, the lock-in cabaret with Griffin and Jones. Yeah. Which I... Oh, can I say this? Because I, I don't want to offend anyone. I'd say it's definitely my favourite cabaret to do of yeah. the whole... 1am it is. 1am. Yeah. 1am it starts... And it will finish by about 2, 2.15, 2.30, depending on how fun we are. It's, it's the last show on the PBH Free Fringe, for sure. It's one of the last shows of the Fringe you can go to. And it's an amazing show. It's, it's awesome. And I love doing it. I always do my, my walk of death routine. And it goes down so well. And I love doing it. The only downside is it is at 1am. Yeah. And it finishes at 2. And even if I don't hang around for a drink afterwards, I've got to get back to my flat and into bed. Because I'm going to be up again at 8am to repeat it all. Uh, I, I never took a day off during the Fringe. Um, from my indoor show, uh, if the weather was particularly bad or I was just knackered, then I would take a day off from street shows. Um, so I probably did a street show two-thirds of the time, probably. I probably took six, seven days off. And were you kind of were you kind of stressed when you were there, or were you just high and enjoying the you know the fact that you were you were out banking and you were you were living this this life I, as a performer? I definitely wasn't stressed. Yeah, um, it was it was tiring. But weirdly, I didn't find it any more tiring as time went on. Yeah. So pretty much from day one, as soon as we started shows, I went to bed every night and I was knackered. I was exhausted. But I'd get up the next morning and I'd have energy again. And I really, I was lucky that I didn't get sick at all over the run. Um, and yeah, I, I found that just, you know, it was, it was physically exhausting going up and down and whatnot. And I, I lost a couple of kilos in weight, and yeah. which is always good. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't get... I wasn't sort of drained by it or anything like that. It was just, it was really invigorating. And the, the people that I was getting to meet, you know, fellow street performers, because I've only just started out, I, I got to meet a lot of great people. A lot of people that I should have known from Covent Garden, from working there, I only met for the first time in Edinburgh because I only started out in the last month or so. And from that, we're now good friends here in London, which is great. Um, so yeah, so no, I, yeah, I was just so happy to be out of banking, to be doing something that I enjoy, that I loved. Uh, and I, I still am to this day. I'm, I'm very lucky. I don't. I don't earn the same money that I did in banking, but that's not why I did it. How does your girlfriend feel about the uh, the drop in income? Well, well, I, I don't think she's bothered about the drop in income so much. She, um, we, we got together a couple of months before I quit and before I did all this. Okay. And so she kind of knew this was on the. Cards. She she knew that I was planning this. Yeah. yeah. And and she was part of a friendship group that I talked about it with before. And, yeah, so, so she's kind of on board with it. She doesn't actually like magic that much, yeah. which is interesting. Uh, but in some ways, that's, that's good, because I think uh, if magicians go back home and they're getting their egos boosted as much there as by their audiences, then it, it's not good for us personally. So I think it's good to, to have her there. As well. She either thinks my tricks are boring, because it's obvious how they're done, or if she can't work out how they're done, she's frustrated because she can't work it out. Um, she does. She does quite enjoy the circus and the juggling. I've taken her to a juggling convention before now, and she loves all things performing. Like one of the, the reasons we're together is that we love theatre. We love going to see stuff. 
Um, so yeah, but I, I pursue with the magic because one day if I can tell her we bought the third house because of magic, then that would be <laughs> amazing. That could be a long way away from you, but we'll see. I, I hope that that is a dream that you achieve, three houses from magic. Um, so at the end of the festival, and actually the one, the one thing that you did um, which during Edinburgh, which you wouldn't have consciously thought to do, but the one bit of advice everyone always gives me or other people during Edinburgh, they say have a day off drinking mm. and that'll help you and you don't drink. I don't drink, that so is you, true. So maybe that helped. That does help, yeah. So I, um, I don't drink, I don't drink tea or coffee either, but I don't drink alcohol. So I pretty much live on water, uh, Coke Zero, the occasional Lucas A, that sort of thing. Um, but I try, mainly I just try and drink on water. So yeah, so it does help that I go and do the lock-in cabaret at one till two. Um, at least I go home and I can sleep pretty well and, and, uh, and I don't have any after effects in the morning as well, which, which does help. So coming out, and I want to talk about this year's Edinburgh because I know you're returning, but um, coming out of Edinburgh, mm. I'm interested uh, what that was like for you. You've, you've had this huge high of performing in Edinburgh. You're living this great lifestyle. What were those first few months like transitioning sort of out of, out of Edinburgh to, to, you know, was it a lot of time in Covent Garden or were you trying to kind mm. of build up actually other business and other work? So a, a tiny part of me in the back of my head was like, oh, now I've done Edinburgh, I hope this is like oh, the big, the big star and everything, and, and, you know, I've got it made, it's going to be amazing. Uh, most of me knew that that wasn't going to be the case, and that um, you don't become a star straight away from your first Edinburgh, and that's something. I'm not sure I even want to become a star, but, you know, I'd like to be more well-known. And certainly from Edinburgh, a few more gigs came up. I started being by, by friends and other performers that um, I, I came to know. Um, but predominantly, a lot of it was, was street performing. And I went back to Covent Garden. The, the September was, was really good in Covent Garden, actually. Um, it was a really good month. And then in October, you got the half-term holiday. That was pretty strong as well. Uh, my, be my best ever day street performing was the Monday after that October half-term. Um, partly through, not because the, the shows were particularly great, although they were good shows, but more that there was less performers, so I was able to do more of them. Um, and that was actually the first day... Uh, working at Covent Garden that I, I earned more money than I did in a day working at the bank. Oh, really? Uh, I made a thing, yeah. So that was... Um, there, was a couple of days, there was a couple of days in Edinburgh where I earned more than I did in the bank. But in terms of Covent Garden street performing, I did four shows and I put a thing on Facebook that I earned more money today than I did from banking. I didn't know you'd done that. That's brilliant. Yeah. I've um, done that a few times now yeah. at Covent Garden. But oh, it's, it's normally on days where it's quiet from performers' point of view. Like, people just didn't turn up. And so I'm able to do... A couple no more shows, and, and, and a couple of them are nice and big, and that pays well. So, What are some of your other aims and things that you're looking to achieve? One of my big passions is pantomime. So I've, I've been involved in a few pantomimes over the years. Uh, one first as a, a kid when I was in the junior chorus. I got to play a tumbling teddy bear uh, in a fairy tale scene, which was mental. Um, my dad likes to bring that up every once in a while just to embarrass me, which is great. Uh, but and then, now you bring it up yourself. I know, I know. That's great. <laughs> uh, and then when I was at university, uh, so I went to Loughborough University, and uh, nearby in Leicester, my brother was working at the Little Theatre there, which is a nice 400-seat venue, uh, and they do a pantomime every Christmas time. And as soon as I was going to Loughborough, he wanted to get me involved in the show. So not that he had any decision over um, casting or anything like that, but he just 
put my name forward to the director and wanted to bring me along to audition. So I did. So uh, actually, before I'd even got my A-level results, before I knew definitely that I was going to Loughborough, although it seemed likely with grades and things, um, I auditioned and got given the part of the evil Abanaza in Aladdin, which was great fun. So I got to, I got to bring in some magic. I, I advised on a couple of, um, not so much illusions, not big tricks, but, but small things to, to include in the show. And in the second half, when we went into my evil lair, I did a Tommy Cooper-esque magic routine, oh, great. which was good fun. I used, uh, I used, I used a dove pan and produced a, a toy rabbit, which uh, always got a nice reaction. And then as I was looking away, the body would fall and the head would just be held at the top, which was, I love that. That was just such good fun. And it ended with me juggling three knives. So it did end with some competency. Um, so that was really good fun. And I, I, I love pantomime as an art form. I think it's, it's so, so good. And, and I, I did it again two or three years later um, and I appeared as an ugly sister in Cinderella. So I have experience wearing high heels on stage, going up and down stairs. I've worn fake eyelashes more than pretty much any of my female friends. Uh, which I have a lot of good techniques for that as well. <laughs> give me a lot of advice. Um, but I, I, I love pantomime. And I loved, I loved doing Dame in particular because it's the only time I've ever worked as a double act. Right. With another ugly sister. And yeah, we get given the script at the start, but we'd, we'd rehearsed so much before we ever hit an audience that... We started finding our own ways through things. We had our own little bits of banter with the audience. And even over the course of the run of the show, we'd come back each night and discuss, oh, let's try adding in this line there and this line there and um, a couple of things. And that, that was such good fun. That's also the show where I learned the importance of corpsing, which not a lot of people do, but I think is a really core component of comedy. Um, the idea of, of people seemingly making mistakes on stage and breaking character. Um, and I think it can be a really useful, effective technique. I, I use it a lot when I'm comparing. Um, if, if someone makes a comment from the audience or you get a heckle that is funny and you don't know how to respond, me corpsing actually buys me a few seconds to to think of a funny line or to, to think of a comeback. So I, I love doing that. Um, so having done panto in the past, I would love to be doing a professional panto at, at Christmas time. I've applied to a few this year. I'm waiting to see if any of those come through. Um, but I just, I looked at some of the big pantomime, I mean, Kudos is, is the big pantomime com company in this country. They do, um, amongst many other shows, the London Palladium that they've done the last few years. And my God, they know, they know how to do a good show. They know how to do a good panto. It's, uh, uh, it's such a good show. And that, that London Palladium panto is, is incredible. The, f the first year I went to that, the first year they did it, um, three or four years ago, I mean, their budget was about three million, I think, for wow. a five-week panto show. But I worked out they must have taken about eight million, maybe ten million in ticket sales. So it's yeah. definitely worth it for them. But they they throw everything at it, sequins and oh, it's so it's so good. But it's it's a perfect place for us as variety performers to appear in. I mean, Paul Zerdin, uh, the ventriloquist, is I think one of the best guys working in panto today, and and. It, it's so impressive how they literally give him maybe two or three lines of dialogue to fit him into a scene, and then it's him and Sam. It's him and his, his puppet um, doing a set piece that he's done for us. But it fits so well into the show, and it's, it's such a good uh, good piece of comedy that then helps string the rest of the show together. But it's such a good opportunity for us as, as magicians, as jugglers, to come along and go, hey, do you know what, gang? The, the prince and the princess, they're getting married and they want us to do the entertainment for the, the party. Can I try it out on you? Here is my 10-minute cabaret set that yeah. you all know and love. Um, it's such a good opportunity and I'd, I'd love to, to do more of that. So so, so that's one thing I'm, I'm hoping to be doing. Um, I'm, we'll, we'll talk about Edinburgh in a minute, but I'm, I'm prepping towards that show as well. I'm actually 
working on a brand new street show. So my, my current street show is all magic because of where I perform on Magic Corner. We kind of have to do a magic show, yeah. um, which is great. And I, I love the cups and balls to finish with. It's honestly my favorite magic trick in all the world. But it doesn't play as big as I would like it to play. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the one crutch with the, the cups and balls is that the final focus on everything is the audience looking slightly down and central at this table. And I think all the biggest and best street shows end you looking up centrally so that because that also allows you a bigger audience. The, the trouble with the cups, if you get two or three people deep, people now can't see the tabletop, so they can't see the balls appearing and then the, yeah. the, the oranges and the melon. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a new street show, which is much more circus-based. It might have a little bit of magic in it, but much more circus juggling-based because um, I've got quite a decent skill set there that I should be using, but also that allows me a bit more height, a bit more danger, and hopefully a, a bigger show. So I'm, I'm working on that at the minute to hopefully be doing the bigger shows in Edinburgh this year. Are you going to go up a ladder or a unicycle at some point, do you reckon? I don't think so, no. uh, for a simple reason. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, as well as loving the cups and balls, I wanted to do a tall unicycle act. That was like the thing I wanted to do. And I actually bought one when I was about 17, um, and I built it up at home and got on it. And as soon as I got on it, I realised that I hate heights. Like, really hate them. So... And, and the weird thing about a giraffe unicycle is your feet are only two or three feet off the ground. Yeah. It's not like I didn't know consciously that I could jump off and, and I'd be fine. I knew I'd be fine. But it's the fact that your head is a good nine, ten foot off the ground that just messes with me. Uh, I've tried stilts over the years as well. Can't do those. Um, I mean, I, like, physically I could get going on, but I, I just mentally can't, can't hack it. Um, and I've tried a little bit of walking ladder, but I've never, I've never gotten good enough to to be able to get up onto the top and do stuff like that. So, so I, I don't quite know on the height. In my current show, I stand on my box a lot, which yeah. gives me a couple of foot of sort of extra height. Um, maybe maybe standing on it end on will give me a bit more extra height as well, but we'll see. I'm hoping that the big finale trick that I'm working on at the minute is I've, I've bought a, a big axe. It looks really nasty and dangerous. So that's going to be in a face balance with three juggling knives. And then I'm working on, I'm hoping to do a sort of accidental axe falls from the face and it goes into four. Oh, lovely. Bit, which would be a really cool yeah that'd be nice um, I definitely do it with clubs I've done that sort of thing for years um, I've just got to practice with the weirdly it's very hard to practice with danger props like that so I, yeah. I live on an estate where I don't have private garden space and funny enough if you go out and try and practice stuff with an axe and three knives um, people start calling the police I don't know, I don't know why. let's talk about Edinburgh this year sure. then tell us all about the show uh, I believe there's a narrative there is a narrative <laughs> that's true um it, it, I mean, it's not entirely written yet, but uh, a good chunk of it is now, thanks to this week. I'm doing my first proper preview next Wednesday, actually, so um, it's not going to have every element of the show in, but it, it's got most of it. Yeah, so the new show is called Man of Mischief Presents, dot, 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 Living the Dream. So the, the real title of the show is Living the Dream. Uh, I've got to put the Man of Mischief bit in because, uh, as you said at the start, my name is Mark Watson, which can often clash with the comedian Mark Watson, who is more famous and more well-known than me. Um, I went through a whole process of thinking whether I should change my stage name and, and whatnot, and ultimately it hasn't really worked out. So I, I only use Mark Watson in my shows as sort of the introductory name, but in all my branding, messaging, everything, I just refer to myself as Mark or Man of Mischief. So Remind me the name of the bank you worked for? Namora. Namora. If, um, if this is the 1900s, I think you would, you would end up doing an act called Namora and you'd be like this, this faux oriental. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how well that plays Before, these days. That's the no, point. I don't think it'd be good nowadays. Um, but my my friend uh, Amy 
uh, really wants me to get into the show, the line, uh, I work there no more. Uh, which oh, is, that's great. Yeah, it should be there. I mean, it's, it's terrible, but it's also amazing. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll try and work that in. No one else will have that line in their show. That's the thing. That's true. That's true. Originality. Yes. Yeah. Tick. Um, yeah, so the show's called Living the Dream. Uh, the reason it's called Living the Dream is when I was in the banking world, everyone used to use the phrase Living the Dream, as they do all over the place. You only have to search on Twitter for hashtag Living the Dream. Um, it's, uh, it's a crazy phrase. It's often used sarcastically, um, especially in the bank. It was used very sarcastically, especially if we were there at 10 o'clock at night. It's like, oh, living the dream. Um, and yeah, the, the whole show is basically my running away with the circus type narrative. Uh, it's totally true. So it talks about the fact that I used to work in corporate life. There's a couple of tricks that relate to accounting and banking and whatnot. My desire to step away from that. Uh, and actually it's an exploration of a bit of my family history. So back 70, 80 years ago, my family actually used to run a circus. They used to run the Hippodrome Circus in Great Yarmouth. Um, and I have various photos of them running stuff, stage managing, all sorts of things. Uh, and I used to hear all these stories from my grandma um, about, yeah, about going to visit them on, on her holidays and things and going to stay with them. and seeing So what was the family name? Was it Watson? Uh, no, it was, uh, so um, it was sort of the Bland family and the Winters. So Winter was, Winter was my grandma's maiden name. And it was yeah. sort of the Bland side of the family. So it'd be winter or bland. Okay. Um, okay. Because there might be some people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. anyone. Right, anyone yeah. that has any connection with the Hippodrome. I know. Um, now it's uh, it's owned and run by Peter Jay of the Jay Birds. I know that was before both of our times. But yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I've I've been to the circus many times. I, I grew up knowing this history. My dad's very keen on uh, fairground history, circus history, all these sorts of things. So he sort of kept this burning in the back of our minds. But um, now that I'm in it as a world. I went away and wanted to, to research and um, yeah, it talks about a particular character I discovered there and some of the similarities between us and what we do. So there's, there's a couple of big circus tricks in there. There is lots of great magic and I'm hoping it's going to be very, very funny. Um, it might not be by the first preview next week, but uh, I'm hoping it gets funnier as time goes on. Oh, everything does. And where, where's it playing? Sure. So uh, I'm going to be appearing at Subway, which is on Cowgate. Uh, much more central, so I'm looking forward to that venue. Yeah, uh, it's a bit bigger, a bit more spacious, better for juggling. I think uh, seats a few more people as well. And I'm appearing there every day from five till six p.m. So it's gonna be one hour show. Is that the venue that Jolly Boat? Yes. Are often in. That's yes. a really nice venue, actually. You've got it's the stage round. Uh, I've I've not actually been in it myself. <laughs> I've just seen photos and things, so I'm not sure. But um, it's a ra- the the auditorium mm. is definitely circular. Nice. Okay. That works yeah. well for the circus thing, right? So yeah. That plays well. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be much more central. Um, it's still a good time slot, five till six, I think, is, is before a lot of the big name acts go on a bit later on in the evening. So uh, I'm very happy with that. Easier to pull people toward because it's not a million miles away from the Royal Mile. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's going to be, it's more of a challenge because um, the show is almost entirely brand new stuff. Um, I wanted to challenge myself on that for various reasons um, but it's forcing me to write new things and come up with new ideas rather than rely on stuff that I've done for 10-12 years so it's a new challenge but I'm looking forward to it and I'm hoping it'll be a much better show much well, better received certainly and uh, and hopefully get a few professional reviews in I think it'll be great it sounds really good you kind of the spirit of Edinburgh I think is you do have to keep bringing new things mm-hmm. like we've been a bit naughty in the last three four years maybe we've done Breaking the Magician's Code, 
Now there's been new tricks every year and new bits that we've added, but it's the same concept mm. of the show. Whereas this year we're getting rid of it. We're doing a new show. And I'm kind of like, I know Breaking the Juice Code is always going to be marketable. Yeah. People will always come to that show. So there's a, you're kind of like, oh, maybe we just keep doing that. But I think the spirit of Edinburgh is to bring new things and build For sure. them in there. For sure. And, and it might be that, um, say, next year, if I, if I do the Edinburgh Fringe again, um, next year might be a new show, but it's actually an amalgamation of the two. And it might be the, the best bits. I think, yeah, you've always got to weigh up um, taking your very best stuff to Edinburgh and also taking new stuff and something different for people to see. Um, I know um, people like uh, Tom Crosby, who said before was a good friend of mine, uh, he's battled with, you know, how much of the show do you change? I know he's, he, uh, at the minute he's planning to take a brand new show there this year and he's moving from the free fringe onto the paid fringe. He is, and, yeah, and good luck to him there. That whole battle um, in your head as to, you know, whether you just take the best of stuff you've done before or whether you take... It's, uh, it's a really tricky question and I, I certainly this is only my second fringe I don't know the answers to it but um, this could be a huge mistake or it could be a massive success we will soon find out well I wish you all the success and this feels nice because it feels like um, I'm like I could have you back on yeah like we could talk again Mark thank you very much thank you for having me thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel please rate review and subscribe to the podcast